We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed friday's game in orlando against canada is now the most important game in greg berhalter's career we now find ourselves using a home game against canada as a referendum on our coach our team and our federation you have coach greg berhalter publicly betting everything on himself and his team in one game there is courage in that but there is also consequence Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking Greg Berhalter going all in on this week's U.S. Men's National Team game against Canada. In our Mossy Makes the Case segment, Mossy's going to talk about the Klopp effect. In our Ask Alexi segment, we'll be talking about the U.S. Women's National Team and the new era that is upon us. And in our Back 3 segment, we'll be talking about MLS Cup and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox Soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday morning? I am good. Uh, you'll notice I've brought a suitcase to the studio today. I saw that. Where are you off to? Uh, right after we're done taping, I'm off to New York to visit the parents. Ooh, how long? I'll be back on Sunday. Now, when you go there, do you stay at home? Do you stay in a hotel? Do you stay at a friend's house? I stay at home. Is your room still intact? And yes. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, my God. They're keeping it for little Davey just the way he <laughs> left it. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, my goodness. So you, so you sleep in your old bed, in your old room, old posters, all that kind of stuff? The way things are going, I might be back living in that room <laughs> pretty soon. Well, you know what I did, Mossy? And tell me if you've done this before. It was an eye-opening experience, to say the least. My son had a birthday party this week, and it was at one of these paintball facilities. Have you ever been to one of these things? No. Sweet mother of God, Mossy. <laughs> okay. The... The, the people and the clientele is worth the price of admission, even if you don't even play paintball, all right? It, there is a whole, and I didn't even know this existed, there's a whole culture of paintball people, these weekend warrior types that show up dressed head to toe in camouflage and protection. If you didn't know it, you'd think there was something actually bad going on walking around seeing some of these uh, these people. And they have a good time. I'd much rather they be doing it with paint than anything else, but it is something to behold. I think there's probably a movie or a uh, TV show based on that type of <laughs> crazy culture that exists there. Kids had a wonderful time and all that kind of stuff, but it was, as I said, some, something I've never experienced before. So if you're out there and you enjoy that paintball stuff, have at it. Everyone was very, very nice, but it was, man, oh man, I've never seen anything like it. Anything else this weekend? Uh, I did go see the movie The Irishman. And? Thumbs up, thumbs, thumbs down? Thumbs up, very good. Really? What do you give it? Uh, five stars is the best, right? Uh, well, you know, pack a lunch. It's three and a half hours long, so... Can there be too much Scorsese? 
Yeah, that would be the one criticism, perhaps, uh, that it's a bit too long, a bit indulgent, some fat in there that could have been taken out. That's the same thing you said about the Tarantino thing the other day, too. These these indulgent... But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the the last Tarantino movie, and and I enjoyed this one as well. I don't mind these long movies. And Pesci's back, right? After a a long exile, self-imposed exile from the uh, film world. Back and better than ever. I thought he was terrific. Oh, gets the thumbs up from Mossy. I'm going to check that out. I'll probably see it on the airplanes where I see most of my... uh, uh, most of my movies. All right, Mossy, anything else? Uh, ready to light this candle? Yep. All right, as you know, each and every week we kick the pod off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. The international break is upon us with the U.S. men's national team hosting Canada in the return leg of group play in the inaugural CONCACAF Nations League tournament. In case you missed it, the U.S. lost to Canada a few weeks ago in Toronto 2-0. Now, losing to Canada is something that hasn't happened in 34 years. As expected, and given the current state of the U.S. men's national team, we immediately reached peak levels of consternation and anger. And the knives were quickly out for Coach Greg Berhalter. Berhalter is going all in by publicly stating that, quote, only a win will suffice. So, Friday's game in Orlando against Canada is now the most important game in Greg Berhalter's career. Yes, this is how far the once CONCACAF mighty U.S. men's national team has fallen since the epic failure to qualify for the 2018 World Cup. We now find ourselves using a home game against Canada in a relatively meaningless tournament as a referendum on our coach, our team, and our federation. The dysfunction, perceived or real, of the United States Soccer Federation has manifested in the U.S. men's national team. The failure to qualify for the 2018 World Cup continues to color almost everything that the Federation does, which means we can't risk not qualifying again. At a time when the U.S. men's national team is accused of losing its traditional character, spirit, and grit, you have coach Greg Berhalter publicly betting everything on himself and his team in one game. I think that's worthy of admiration and respect and support. There is courage in that, but there is also consequence. If only a win will suffice, then anything less requires a change. All right, Mossy, that is my uh, State of the Union for this week. For those that can see me, I am sporting my uh, USA colors in support of Greg Berhalter and this U.S. national team as they uh, go all in on Canada right now. Am I reading the situation wrong with regards to the way that Greg Berhalter has framed it or the way that I am framing it or the way that a lot of us are framing it? Uh, no, a quick story. In the summer of 2016, we covered the Copa America Centenario. The U.S. lost its opening game to Colombia. They faced Costa Rica next, and in the production meetings leading up to that game, it was suggested that the U.S. had a habit of creating these crises, but then stepping up when their backs were against the wall. And another researcher I won't name who was working that event put together a list of examples of that, of the U.S. stepping up when they had their backs against the wall. And included in that list was a 1-0 win over Guadalupe in the 2011 Gold Cup because it was coming off a loss to Panama. And I chuckled that day. I I still chuckle to this day that that was framed as somehow a big win. And there's some of that in play here. Now, Canada is infinitely better than Guadalupe, which is not even a country. But uh, still, you're right. It is amazing that we're sitting here talking about home to Canada being any kind of bellwether game. And I don't think the fans buy that at all. Uh, I think Greg Berhalter has a lot to lose here, potentially his job, but not that much to win. I think even a, a victory over Canada is not going to get rid of this dark cloud that you mentioned. No, no I, I don't think that this is, uh, that a win over Canada, like you say, gets rid of the dark cloud. But a lose to Canada, 
brings that that conversation that, that that people have had and that people certainly had from the start and people it gives incredible fodder for folks that don't like Greg Berhalter think it was the wrong hire or think maybe it was the right hire but now it's the wrong hire and you need to make a change going forward and never in any time in the past and I've said this before has Canada been a team that from a US perspective we have feared and for good reason, given you know what I said in the State of the Union, 34 years since we lost to Canada. Now, having said all of that, and I know my Canadian friends, not that I care what they, <laughs> what they say, but they would want us and me to give Canada props. They are a much better team. Possibly, you could argue, the best Canadian team that we have seen in a long time or, or ever, given the talent that they have and given the confidence they have. I don't think that... I do agree that there is a manufacturing part of uh, of this, but and as I mentioned last week, the the gauntlet that has been laid down by Greg Berhalter came in the form of a letter to the American Outlaws, in which he talked about you know he, he almost apologized and said that wasn't good enough and it was all right, but he also talked about how this game against Canada is so important. I don't think that this changes everybody's mind, but I, I'm telling you, I think that it would not surprise me in the least if Greg Berhalter, if they lost this game, stepped down. He is a, a man, um, a very smart man, a very good coach um, in a process right now. Would he be abandoning that process? Yes, but I also think he, that he, he feels about uh, the, the U.S. men's national team in a way that there, there is an honor and a responsibility and a respect that I think would reflect, would reflect in that type of decision. Now, keep in mind, he never said that if they lose, that, that he said it won't suffice, anything but a win uh, won't suffice, but he also never said that he's going anywhere. So who knows what that ultimately means? But I, you know, I, as I said, I got a lot of admiration and respect for him doing something like this. Is he creating that that situation once again for the U.S. team? Probably. I think they respond. As I've said before, I think that they go and they beat Canada in a convincing win. It doesn't change a lot of people's mind, but it gives him some breathing room until next year. Yeah, for club coaches, the dangerous period to be on the hot seat is leading into an international break or a winter break. For international managers, it's the end of a calendar year because that is the longest gap between games, and it's a chance for a federation to kind of push the reset button. What's your sense? I know you said Berhalter might step down, but if they have a negative result against Canada, he doesn't step down. Would Ernie Stewart uh, make a change? So the Ernie Stewart thing is interesting because we know that Ernie Stewart came on initially as the U.S. men's national team technical director and since has been promoted to this new position above everyone, including running Kate Margraf uh, and then the U.S. Women's National Team. For whatever reason, I don't know, that's an eternal decision, uh, but ultimately if a change were made, it would be Ernie Stewart basically saying that the one and only and certainly the most important decision that he has made in his short tenure as, the, as, as both of these positions was wrong and failed. That's not a reason not to do it, but that also takes somebody to say, I made a mistake. And the first time out, I made a mistake. Now, there's a lot of people out there that would say, including myself, it's if you don't try to fix that mistake, even though it's your first mistake, then you're just compounding it and making it worse. Uh, or do you, you know, you back this person that you believed at the time was good? And certainly, as I said, there is this process. And Greg Berhalter has tried to do something different, more evolved in what the team is doing. And if you cut it off at the pass, what you're saying is that's not what we either 
can be right now or want to be, and we don't see it coming out at the other side. So much so that we're not willing to risk, as I said in the State of the Union, the most important thing, which is qualifying for 2022. Let me ask you about Zach Steffen because I think it plays into all this. <laughs> yes. So Steffen was left off the U.S. squad so he could rest his ailing knee over the international break, yes. but he played this past weekend for Dusseldorf. Incredible game against Schalke, which featured three U.S. internationals, Weston McKinney, Alfredo Morales, who are on Greg Berhalter's list. A, do you have an issue with Zach Steffen not being in the U.S. squad? And B, do you think that Berhalter left him off under the circumstances I just described shows that he's not fearing losing his job at all right now? I have an issue with the way the situation was handled. And unfortunately, it's once again, the United States Soccer Federation can't get out of its own way and shoots itself in, in, in its foot time and time again. This was, keep in mind, we were all told uh, of the roster. And we were told at the time that Zach Steffen was not coming in because he was hurt. There was an injury. Fine. Fair enough. It happens. You don't want it to happen, but it happens. Uh, there, there certainly is a recognition from a club perspective of an opportunity to rest when it comes to the international game. Representing your country on the national team is not a requirement, all right? It is a both an honor and a privilege. But it is something that uh, that you are asked to do and that you agree to do, okay? And it comes with, I'm not going to say sacrifices because, you know, on this day of all days, it's, it's not even close to sacrifices, the real-life sacrifices that we talk about in life. But when it comes to long travel, potential for injury, playing with teams that might not be on the level either up or down that you are used to, all of those different things, they play into it. And those are things that you accept, all right? And Zach Steffen, so he was not on the list. Fair enough, he's, he's hurt, he's not going to play. Next thing you know, we get up on Saturday morning watching Bundesliga, and there's Zach Steffen standing in goal. And immediately, it's the United States Soccer Federation running around trying to put out these fires and trying to spin this one. And they came out and they said, it was agreed upon ahead of time that the injury that he has, which is tendonitis, was something that he needed time to rest. It didn't prevent him from playing soccer, but that Greg Berhalter and he and the Federation and his team uh, in Germany agreed that this was the time to shut him down, shall we say. Fair enough. But you knew that. Get ahead of the story. Fix it. No, no, don't fix it. You don't have to fix it. That's the problem. They're fixing it when they could have come out and they could have said, this is the situation. And people would, would have understood that. Instead, we wake up and we got our number one goalkeeper playing in the Bundesliga after we've been told that he's injured. It's a bad look and it's unnecessary. This type of reactive environment and reactive behavior that the Federation seems to do or behavior or, or they don't even react, they don't do anything, is unfortunately becoming so commonplace. And that's, that's, what, frustrates, that's what frustrates me. And I, it, it was needless. You didn't have to, ha you created a situation and a story and a conflict where one didn't need to happen if you had gotten ahead of it. That's, that, so that's what's frustrating to me. All of this amounts to the fact that Zach Steffen is not going to be in goal. Could get Wally Pipped, my friend. Could get Wally Pipped. Most I mean, likely Brad Guzan. Brad Guzan could come in. Uh, I can't remember who the uh, other uh, goalkeepers are. But whoever comes in, in, by the way, as we've already said, is the most important game in Greg Berhalter's career and is there in that most important moment, you never know. You never know what will happen. So it was, it was a very strange 
course of events. And I, you know, the emails were coming through from the Federation trying to clean up this mess that they created in the first place. Uh, Serginho Des in the squad. Yes. So the moment he steps on the field, he officially it's becomes captain. It's done. We send him back home, and that's it. <laughs> and that's the case if he plays either against Canada or our game, which we should mention, right. November 19, yep. uh, against Cuba in the Cayman Islands. I offered to cover that game. Of course you uh, because you're a man that will sacrifice for the conference. Uh, yes, uh, but but it was not to be. Uh, programming note, Rob Stone will anchor our coverage uh, that day. I, yeah, Rob Stone, the bowling guy. He does other sports, I know. Uh, but um, so... In closing, I mean, what, what are your overall expectations heading into these two games? My expectation are that they they beat Canada and that there is, you know, not a, uh, a complete change of heart when it comes to the way that people view Greg Berhalter. But there is, as you mentioned, both from a practical standpoint, a time to have a breath. And I think that for him, a new beginning or a lifeline, if you will. And I think it's I think it's important. You know, I mentioned that that this is it's not a meaningless tournament. Well, to the U.S., it's meaningless in terms of the you're still going to get into the hex. For other teams, it's much more important in terms of where they ultimately end up uh, finishing. Especially for Canada, which started outside of the top six when it came to the top six Concacaf ranked teams, as FIFA looks at them, and now is in with that with that win. So it's important for them to maintain it. The other part of it is this is a tournament. There is a a a moment at the end where you're raising a trophy. And so that's that's important because ultimately you're trying to get to the World Cup, which is also a tournament. So for Greg Berhalter, this game has a very real significance. And it's because he has created that significance or flamed the interest and the significance uh, of this particular game. I can't wait to see it. I love when people go all in in the same way that when you go to Vegas and you're sitting there and you see somebody just push them all in and, and stand up. They're, they're betting on themselves. And, you know, Greg Berhalter, if, if Greg Berhalter doesn't believe in himself, then there's a big problem. I think Greg Berhalter believes in himself. I think that's why he is doing this. I think he believes that the path that he has started out on is the right path. We can argue and we can disagree going forward. But if he doesn't believe in it, then nobody is going to believe in it. And so I'm glad that he believes in himself. I'm glad that he believes in the way that he is going. And I'm glad that is manifesting in him saying, this is it. This is the moment of truth. There will be other moments, but this is the moment of truth. And that's why I can't wait uh, to watch this game and see, uh, and see what happens. Who's playing, how they play, um, and ultimately what the result is. Anything else? Nope. All right, moving on. Hello, people. It's Alexi here. More of the State of the Union is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out. Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part, it's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now back to the show. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's time again for that uh, moment of the show when Mossy makes the case. Mossy, what are you casing for this week? My case is that in addition to the mutant gene, the clutch gene exists as well. Jurgen Klopp's former club and his current team were involved in the two biggest games in Europe this weekend. And while there are some similarities in the way Dortmund and Liverpool play, they couldn't be more different in one very important aspect. Klopp's current team has a so-called winning mentality, while his former club most certainly does not. Dortmund laid an absolute egg in a demoralizing 4-0 defeat to Bayern, while Liverpool scored twice in the first 15 minutes en route to a relatively comfortable win over Manchester City. 
The Liverpool result opened up a nine-point gap between themselves and City, the very lead that Dortmund squandered against Bayern last season. It is highly unlikely the same thing will happen with the Reds because in addition to all the other good things he's brought to Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp has reinstilled a belief at a club that for a lot of years had a waiting for the other shoe to drop, how are we going to blow this identity? Liverpool now rise to the occasion, they play their best when it matters most, and they find ways to win. And it's easy to overlook amidst all the tangible reasons for their success, the spending, the tactics, the quality, but intangibles play a big part as well. Can Dortmund acquire that winning mentality? Maybe. Sometimes all it takes is one result or the signing of one player to alter the dynamic at a club. But they better acquire it soon if they hope to topple Bayern because, as we were reminded again this weekend, trophies are won not just with your feet, or in, the, or in Liverpool's case, maybe with your hands. They're also won <laughs> between the ears. Oh, Mossy, I love it. Okay, so I want, I want to make sure that I understand what you're saying. I just want some clarification and stuff because when, when Klopp was doing his magic at Dortmund. The is it an apples to apples type of thing in terms of him coming into a uh, a team? Do you look at Dortmund and what it was pre-Klopp, still a, a high profile team, in the same way that you look at Liverpool when he came in? And so, are they? Is it a fair comparison to to uh, to say that what he did at Dortmund he basically replicated at uh, Liverpool in terms of the way that? The players think about the team the way that he has made people think about a team and we outside think about these teams? Yeah, I think there are some similarities there. Uh, I was just, I mean, I don't know how you felt about it. I was absolutely appalled by Dortmund's performance on Saturday. I know they've let us down before, particularly in this fixture. In the five seasons we've been covering the Bundesliga, they've lost at Bayern 5-1, 4-1, 6-0, 5-0, and 4-0. So maybe we shouldn't have been surprised. But for whatever reason, I convinced myself this was going to be different. I, I remain bullish that this is not a vintage Bayern team. Dortmund should have been able to play with them, but they were so flat. They looked like they didn't want to be out there. They've made some moves the last couple of years to try to address this mental fragility, bringing in players like Witzel and Delaney and Hummels, and yet nothing changes. I mean, what did you make of that performance? So you mentioned, you know, having the right mentality. And the, the great coaches in the world obviously find a way to make a player play better than anybody else has. They can't change a player into something completely that he or she is never going to be. But they can, their, their greatness and the reason why you pay them is everybody else has gotten this player to this level. I can get this player to play at a higher level. But I think they pick and choose those players very, very carefully. And it doesn't always have to do, as a matter of fact, often it doesn't necessarily have to do with how they kick the ball. And finding the right types of personalities and characters, as you mentioned, is as important to building an identity and building a culture and all these words that we throw around. And sometimes they're very difficult to define. But having a player that doesn't cower, that has a chip on his or her shoulder, that sees, as opposed to a possibility to fail, sees a possibility to succeed. And so when that Dortmund team under Klopp would go in and play games or play games against Bayern Munich, I think there's a different mentality. And that is not done overnight. That is instilled t time and time again. It's not even necessarily instilled all the time on the training grounds or anything like that. 
it's little things. It's a, a word or a conversation that you have in, at a hotel or on a bus. It's a look. It's all of these different things that at times, as I said, are difficult to define and tangibles that make great coaches great coaches, okay? We, when we talk about Pep and stuff like that, yeah, we'll talk about the X's and O's, and there is plenty of that for both Klopp and Pep. But it's also the little things, when to put your arm on the back and pat somebody on the back, when to kick them in the ass, all, all those things that you decide. And I think the great coaches, like someone like Klopp, instinctively knows when that moment arises and relishes it because they know that by using that moment, then when it comes time, the most important time, they will have built up in that bank the confidence that is going to be needed when you are challenged, not just physically, but when you're challenged mentally. And I think the collection of players that they have right now and the leadership that they have at Dortmund has not instilled that in them. And so that's why you see the collapse that happened at Bayern Munich. And one personnel note on Dortmund, I know we're talking about mentality, but if they are serious about challenging for a Bundesliga title this season, they have to go out in January and get a proper backup for Paco Alcacer uh, the fact that anytime he's not fit enough to start, the plan B is starting Mario Gutza as a false nine is ridiculous. There are some games that are just not suited to that. You're facing this makeshift Bayern back line with a center back pairing of David Alaba and Javi Martinez. And the fact that you put no pressure on those center backs, they had no penalty box presence in that game, is absolutely criminal. Uh, so I don't understand it. I mean, they have to be the only team in Europe that have only one out-and-out striker in their squad. I don't know how they neglected to take care of that this summer, but they, they should do so in January, again, if they're serious about winning the title this season. Uh, people, uh, nothing saddens me more than to see a apoplectic and uh, I'd even say distraught David Mossy when it comes to a performance of a team. To say that he takes it personally uh, is an understatement. It, I think it is affecting him both uh, mentally, but I think physically. You are slouching right now when you are talking about this Dortmund team. It's as if they through their performance, offended you. And that comes from a, a position, I think, and don't want me to put words in your mouth, that you expect more. Now, are you expecting more because you're living in the past? You're living at something that they're not? Or are you just expecting more because they have promised you over the last couple of years and in many cases delivered and that that's where we are when it comes to Borussia Dortmund? Yeah, I don't like being wrong, and I went into the season really feeling like this was going to be a different Dortmund that was going to rise to the occasion. This was the season for them to topple Bayern, and uh, so far it looks like I'm colossally wrong because it seems like it's the same old Dortmund. Uh, uh, so, coaching yeah. change wrong, or what do you think? Uh, not yet, but I think some questions have to be asked of Lucien Favre, absolutely. Now, let me say this about Liverpool. I mentioned in my monologue that sometimes uh, one game can alter the dynamic mm -hmm. of a club. To the extent that there is that game for Liverpool, I think most people would point to that second leg against Barcelona because they were staring at another trophyless sure. season. Now, I don't look at Liverpool the same way I look at Dortmund last season because I think uh, they were lights out at the end of the year in that, in that title race with Man City and they just got pipped because Man City were just slightly better. It's different than Liverpool who had a string of games you can point to that show that they were wilting under the pressure. They blew a three-goal lead to Hoffenheim. They lost to Augsburg. They drew Nuremberg. They lost 5-0 to Bayern. Liverpool didn't have anything like that. But you know the way people are. If, if they hadn't won a trophy last season, uh, there still would have been sure. this thing hanging over them. So do you agree that whatever... Uh, self-doubt that club still had was extinguished that day. They went on, they won the Champions League, and now they've come into the season with just this incredible swagger of feeling like they are the best team and they, they are going to win the Premier League. 
Yeah, and you know the the win over the weekend over Man City. There was still it, it still just lingers, like you said, that eh, this could be it, and this could be where things start to change and stuff like that. And they didn't miss a beat. They came in. You talked about that mentality. It and it was it was not even a game. I mean, it was it, it was comprehensive, as they say. And so, does this mean that the EPL's done? Uh, that just give it to Liverpool and finish it off? No, we've seen in the past, and we even saw last year that things can happen. But you're in the biggest moments when your players individually and you know, the stars stepped up in terms of scoring goals. The team put a comprehensive performance against their biggest rival. And let's be honest, they're, it's, it's their only real rival right now. To do that, I think I think that was yet another notch that they can point to. And as a coach, I said, you know, you you also need touchstones, and for Klopp to be able to say, you did this, you did this, and point to it and point to individuals. Remember when you did this? Oh, that is huge. And that was just another ninety minutes in that bank. Yeah, last season it got up to seven, but then it quickly came back down to four right. because they played away to City. They lost a hard-fought two-one game because of that goal line decision. They were eleven millimeters away from getting a draw in that game. And then it was pretty much nip and tuck the rest of the way. Be interested to see this season if, if this lead they have now really settles and, and they can sort of maintain this gap for a while. So yeah, I mean I I, I think Liverpool are definitely going to win the Premier League this season. I can't conceive of a, of them of them squandering this lead. Now we've talked so much about VAR. I was just about to say <laughs> we should we should uh, we should talk about that because it was such a big uh, aspect of that game. I'll just get my take out of the way and then you can go on the first play, my issue there is I think it was a handball in Bernardo Silva mm, first, which one. negates the Alexander-Arnold handball. So uh, that might might have not been the reason why they didn't call it, but I think the end result of that play I'm fine with not being a, a penalty because, like I said, I think it should have been a handball in Bernardo Silva first. The second one, which people seem to have uh, way less of an issue with the non-call, is the one that bothers me. And I think you and I are on the same boat on this. There's way too much latitude given to defenders. People try to rationalize, always an excuse to say it wasn't handball. To me, if you're a defender, you come at an attacking player and your arms are extended at all away from your body and the ball hits your arm and that's what prevents it from going in the direction of the goal. To me, that has to be a handball and a penalty there. And I think Pep has a fair gripe. I don't care that they were so close to each other and the ball came at him really fast and what do you want the defender to do there? I mean, I'm sorry, just my conception of what handball should be, to me, sure. that should have been a penalty. So, you know, the, the handball law right now is, and it always has been, subjective. And you read the law, and then we interpret it, uh, as opposed to the offside law, which we know is there. You may disagree with the line, but as we discussed before, the line is the line. You can't be a little pregnant. This is why, for many years, I have said this. The law, when it comes to handball, should simply be if the ball hits your arm or your hand, it is a foul. It doesn't matter what your shape is. It doesn't matter if it's deliberate or anything like that. We already see players that play with their arms behind their back to make sure because they don't know and they don't want to risk it. Players will adapt. Coaches will adapt. Fans will adapt. And obviously referees will adapt to, to that. Because after each and every time the ball does hit a arm or a hand, there is this immediate discussion. Now, I'm not about completely getting the, the gray area of our game out or the subjective nature of our game out. But I just think right now there is, <laughs> there is so much confusion. And it's not confusion as to what the law is. Everybody can read the law. But the interpretation and the way we all read this law is so different. 
And then we see it play out in front of us time and time again that I think, and as I said before, I would rather see if it hits your arm or hand, it's a foul. Doesn't matter how. So you play with your hands behind your back, then there's no, there's, there's no argument. Look, it hit it. Which is what they did for attacking players now. If the ball hits your exactly. hand in the buildup to a goal, there's, it's a handball, no questions asked. It's weird that they addressed it that way, but they stopped halfway. They didn't do it for defenders as well. I guess they think defenders should be given a little bit more leeway than that. But, I mean, as we no, talked about... We, it's, you, will, you will adjust as a player, as a defender. And I say this as a defender. Does it put defenders, my, my, uh, my, my ex-colleagues out there, uh, in difficult situations? Or does it make it more difficult to defend? Yeah. So you're going to have to figure it out. And the defenders that can figure it out are going to become that much more valuable. And will there be more penalties? Yeah, but it's equal for all sides. And if you are the player, as I've, I've said this before, if you are a player that is good enough in the moment when you're going 100 miles an hour to hit the ball and have that ball hit the hand or the arm of the opponent, take the penalty. Uh, fair enough. If you can do that, that's fine. You can use that to your advantage, fine. But I don't think that that's ever going to, uh, to happen, and it's certainly not going to happen anytime soon. But I would love to see a game played like that and see what adjustments players would make. Obviously, a whole lot would, more would put their hands behind their back to make sure that people understood that. And then when we did go to VAR, it wasn't an interpretation of the law. It was, well, did the ball hit the guy's hand or arm? Yes, it did. Well, then that, it's a foul. So I don't know if that's going to happen. And I, I said it was a relatively comfortable win if that play was given a penalty, presuming City converted the penalty, it would have been 3-2 and would have made for a very uncomfortable last few minutes in Anfield, <laughs> in which their championship medal would have really been put to the test. But again, I think they would have come through and still sure. seen out the game. So, And just to, to finish it on this, because if you watched Pep Guardiola, who we, we talk so much about, a real facetious type of thank you to the referees. <laughs> I love that. To, you know, to expect Pep or anybody else to be gracious and uh, magnanimous in this moment to the referees or anybody else. No, this is, you know, this is this is Bob Bradley defending Vela or anybody else. You you want your guy to defend you and to vent. And if you're a fan, if you're a player, you want your coach to uh, to defend you. Now you don't want them to be disingenuous or completely delusional in what they're doing, which ultimately ends up sometimes making you look even even worse. But you know, the, the uh, tisk tisk that happened when people saw Pep do that. No, nah, I love it. I have no problem. I have no problem. That's what his, his personality and his character and his, and his fire is what drives him, which, which what makes him great. And that plays out in a lot of different, uh, different ways. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, it's that time again for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on the uh, old uh, social media machine and uh, send us your comments, questions, and concerns. And we pick three as we have done here. Mossy, what do the people want to know today? First up, at nsuri20. Feels kind of weird to be asking a dude this, but <laughs> what do you think about Alex Morgan saying she'll be back in time for the Olympics? Will her role be different when she's back? What's going through Vlatko's head? Hmm. Well, it shouldn't feel weird. I can have an opinion on being pregnant, and for those that don't know, Alex Morgan is pregnant, and therefore she's not with the national team. She will have a if she, if if everything happens in the natural course of events, she will have I think it's three months to get ready for the Olympics next summer. Remains to seen whether she 
can do that, whether she wants, well, she wants to do that, but it remains to be seen uh, whether she can do that. And even at the time, we don't know how she's going to feel. Maybe she, while she wants to do it now, maybe she gets to the point and doesn't want to do it. Uh, It shouldn't feel weird for you to ask me that. I can have an opinion on uh, Alex Morgan uh, and her pregnancy and how it's going to affect her uh, like anybody else. I know I've never been pregnant, but uh, it's still going to have an opinion, I think. And as it relates to this, there is nobody right now in the U.S. Women's National Team program that we have seen that can approximate or duplicate what Alex Morgan does when she is up there, including Carly Lloyd. Now, Carly Lloyd is the, she's not the heir apparent. She's just, she's who they have right now. We saw her play this week. She did a great job, but she plays the the position very, very differently than Alex Morgan. And that's, that's not a good or bad thing. It's just that I think Alex Morgan, the way that she, uh, with her stature and the way that she runs behind lines, that's not something that Carly Lloyd is going to do. So fundamentally, Vlatko, the new coach, is going to have to change the way they play when they have someone like Alex Morgan as opposed to a Carly Lloyd. And so he's going to have to make a, a, a big decision. And I think he's going to give, as he should, Alex Morgan every benefit of the doubt to get back because she is so special. If he had another two or three potentials out there. Maybe he does up his sleeve. And unless somebody in the next six months steps up and is just lights out and makes us forget Alex Morgan, they are going to give Alex Morgan and Vaco is going to give Alex Morgan the, as much time as she possibly needs before they make that, uh, that final decision. As I said before, you don't know how your body is going to re- react to a pregnancy and then a birth, and you don't know how you're going to feel physically uh, or emotionally when, when that happens. She says right now she wants to play. I would not put it past her or any of the players to, from a physical perspective, recover sufficiently in order to give the U.S. Women's National Team the type of Alex Morgan that they need right now. But I think it, it's just gonna it's gonna take some time. And if it's Carly Lloyd, I think you're gonna see a very different type of U.S. Women's National Team. And talking to Vlatko, the new uh, coach of the U.S. Women's National Team. He really wants to do some different things, and he really sounded, ironically, a lot like Greg Berhalter in a much more romantic, possession-based type of approach as opposed to a much more pragmatic, direct, physical type of play that the U.S. Women's National Team has played and played very well and very successfully over the years. It is tricky when you take over a very successful situation. As a coach, your instinct is to want to put some kind of stamp of your own on it, but would you tell Vladko, hey, man, just... If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. I mean, he, <laughs> I, I, I used the analogy of, of him ta- you know, being given the keys to a Ferrari that he's never driven before and a Ferrari that has been functioning very, very well. And if you start tweaking it here or there, you better be damn sure that you're tweaking it to make it even better. Because even the slightest real or perceived problem or regression is going to, from a public perspective, cast you in a poor light. And... We know hell hath no fury like a scorned U.S. women's national team. And if they don't feel that you are headed in that Ferrari in the right direction and in the way that they want, they will get somebody else <laughs> the, uh, the keys to that Ferrari very, very quickly. All right, what else, Mossy? Uh, next up, at BW Holmes 3 who's Bayern's next coach? Ooh, okay. So 
Let's see here. What are the uh, the possibilities? You want to list them or you want me to list them? I got them in front of me here. Uh, and you, these uh, are the betting favorites. Or, yeah, or... you know, we, 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 you know, yeah. But, but you know, they, they come out with these lists and stuff like that. Some of, our, some of our absolutely potential coaches. Some of them are just kind of long shots, if you will. So Hansi Flick right now, right? Okay. Yeah. You, you, is that a possibility or not? Long term? No, no. No. You just think that this is right, right. just get in there, do what your best you can, and we're going to, you know. We have somebody else lined up, right? Right. Okay. Do you see a potential for a, a Wenger? No. Let, let me address the Arsene Wenger thing because that caught some people off guard. It's not as random as you think. Um, Arsene Wenger speaks perfect German. He grew up in a part of France, which is right on the border. Mm-hmm. He's known Rummenigge and Honus for 30 years. He almost became the Bayern coach way back in 1994 when he was at Monaco. And it does sound like Bayern want a stopgap for the rest of the season. I think Jupp Heynckes has taken the phone off the hook. So <laughs> He said, I did my time, yeah. all right? <laughs> uh, so Wenger would have been in that vein. Uh, also would have been kind of similar to Chelsea hiring Gus Hiddink, which they did twice uh, in the last decade after firing a coach uh, in season. But it doesn't sound like it's going to happen because, A, I don't think Wenger wants that uh, stopgap kind of thing. I'm not sure what Arsene Wenger wants at this point. He's seven years old. He says he wants to manage again. But does he really want a situation where he's going to build for a lot of years? I don't know. This kind of seemed like it would have been perfect if uh, if he wanted it. But the other thing is they have gone out and won two games here under Hansi Flick, including smashing Dortmund in the other mm-hmm. classicer. So. I think he's at the very least positioned himself as the stopgap solution. They're going to let him keep the job until the winter break, reevaluate, and if he's done well up to that point, probably until the end of the season. I don't think he's a serious candidate to get the job beyond that, but you know, at, at least he could keep it for the rest of this campaign. Uh, the two names that have sort of emerged, I know uh, there are different lists that are being put out, sure. but the more you read, Ten Hag, the Ajax coach, and Thomas Tuchel, who's at PSG right now, do seem like the, the two likeliest candidates to get this job permanently. I thought it might have been Allegri, but I'm not hearing as much no. Allegri talk as I expected. And Mourinho, no. Uh, I haven't really heard any right. Mourinho talk, which has to be just galling to him because I think he would have jumped at that job. So if you were to go to Vegas right now and put all on one person, who would you put it on? Beyond this season? Yeah. I mean, okay. So because you, you, you're saying that Hansi Flick is, is temporary. Yeah. I, I think if I had to guess the way this is going to play out, I would say Hansi Flick until the end of this season and then Ten Hag, the Ajax coach Hag, after that. Uh, a couple of notes on Hansi Flick. This already started under Kovac, to, to, to be fair, but Alfonso Davies has really found at home at that left back spot. He looked really good. He looked like almost a different player. It's almost as if something clicked. Uh, I mean, it's it's wonderful to see for him, but he, he looked like he looked comfortable. And that's something I don't think we've said about him a lot. Yeah. And and the other thing is under Hansi Flick, the Coutinho Muller thing has really flipped Muller's way. Uh, I think Kovac had asked for Coutinho, and so he was very invested in trying to make it work. So even as we talked about, Coutinho had a string of bad games, but he was staying in the starting lineup. As soon as Hansi Flick took charge in his first press conference, he said Thomas Muller is going to have a big role to play. And that first Champions League game against Olympiacos, Muller started. Coutinho didn't come on until the 90th minute. And then uh, this past weekend against Dortmund, Muller started as well. Coutinho came on a little bit earlier than that. But still, I mean, it, this is like trending towards Muller being the guy for the foreseeable future and Coutinho being on the bench, which I'm sure has got to be very frustrating for him given the way things happen at Barcelona. And this was supposed to be kind of a rebirth and it's already gone all wrong for him there. So, uh, But those would be the, my two early notes uh, for Bayern under Hansi Flick. All right. All right. Well, we'll see what uh, they ultimately do. What else, Mossy? This is a very interesting question. I'm glad we're going to explore what's very much kind of a overlooked part of your life. <laughs> At Hugo CH Garcia 345, mm. when you were in Ecuador, what was the team's main objective? The league or a Libertadores spot? Was there a Liguilla? 
Wow. Okay. So is this isn't this Alex's fun question? What what? Yeah, Isn't it's it supposed to be Alex's fun question. Yeah, right, it's a, this, this is okay, a long way so, from pizza <clears throat> toppings. So but. many, 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 many years ago, back in the 1900s, I went on a loan spell, as they say. Uh, at the time, I was with uh, New England Revolution, I think, down to play in Ecuador at a team uh, uh, called Emelec, which is in the city of Guayaquil. Okay. For those that don't know, uh, Emelec is one of the two big clubs, shall we say. One being Emelec and the other being Barcelona, all right? Obviously not the Barcelona, Spain, but the Barcelona uh, in Ecuador. Uh, so I was going down to one of the big clubs, if you will, down there in, uh, in Ecuador. I went down and it was uh, in the middle of El Nino season. Uh, for those <laughs> that have, ever, have never been to Guayaquil, it was the hottest place I've ever been in my life. Okay, in terms of the humidity, uh, the flooding was just incredible. So the the rains and the the tropical El Nino effect that was uh, that was going on. Uh, we also at times played at uh, at altitude uh, in Ecuador, as you can imagine. So there were a lot of different things going on. The uh, president of the club at the time, I think I've told you this before, was uh, the first thing he did was sit me down in his office and for the next hour give me a dissertation on the advantages and the importance of socialism and communism. Uh, he handed me a, uh, a Che Guevara watch as a gift. Um, so, and then uh, we proceeded to get in a plane that maybe flew a thousand feet off the ground and went to uh, where we, were. we met, uh, met up the team. It was a, an experience unlike anything I've ever had. It's a lot longer conversation. I'll, I'll tell you about it someday later, or maybe I'll write about it someday later. The objective as, as it was explained to me, was, and we talk about this before, sometimes how a season can be made by beating your rival. It was about Barcelona. It was about that Clásico. Whatever Barcelona does, you have to do better. So if it is in the league, if it is in a cup, whatever it ends up being, that's how you measure yourself. And we see this in, in many countries, including in Spain and other places. And we see it in other sports. You know, with Michigan, Michigan State coming up, or Michigan and Ohio State, all that kind of stuff. Sometimes you're, because you knew that relegation wasn't a, a problem or anything like that, because you had most of the players. I, by the way, Joe Max Moore, who many of you may remember from in the past, also joined me down there. So we were two American kids running around in Guayaquil, uh, Ecuador. That was the most important thing from the way that it was explained to me, was Win as many games as you possibly can. Do as well, well as you possibly can, but just make sure you do it better than Barcelona. How many games around the agenda playing for? Oh, that? I don't know, not many. I mean, I was only on there for months. It wasn't like I was there for years or anything like that. I was down there for months. I got paid in American dollars, direct deposit. Thank God. And it was, it was, it was crazy. They. <laughs> so I think I, I don't know if I've told this before. If if I have, I, I apologize. I'll tell you one more story about that. So. They had concentration, which is what they call when you go in and you're with the team and you usually go into a hotel or something like that. Their concentration was actual barracks built into the actual stadium that you played in, okay? And we had a game on the weekend and they brought us in to start staying. So away from your family or away from you know the apartment that you're staying in at the beginning of the week. We stayed the entire week. And I remember going and talking to the coach and saying, why are you why are you doing this? And he said, Alexi, listen, 
while I have no, no doubt that if I gave you the opportunity, you would be a professional and you would go out there too, you know, you would, you would sleep, you wouldn't be out, you'd get prepared for the game on the weekend. Because it was so foreign to me to have to do this. He goes, we don't trust our players and so therefore we have to keep them in concentration in order to make sure that they are ready for this important game on the weekend. Fair enough. That's that's what they wanted to do, but it was not anything that I was uh, that I was used to, uh, and and not anything that I've, I've that I saw in the past or anything that I saw in the future. I remember in the 2014 World Cup, the Netherlands were out and about in Rio, going to the beach, and and they played very well, and everybody attributed it to them being loose. And Scolari was asked if he ever thought about giving his team uh, the same kind of freedom. Obviously, he was the Brazil coach at the time. And he said, if I did that with my players, half of them wouldn't turn up for the games. <laughs> so it's kind of the same idea. But as famous, legendary Brazilian coach João Saldanha once said, if concentrations won games, the prison team would be undefeated. Oh, that's a good one. It's a great way to end this up. We got we got anything else? Or are we done with that? Ask Alexi. No, that's it. All right. Well, listen. Uh, use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, out there when you're uh, sending us your comments, questions, concerns. You want to know more about my, uh, you know, exploits down in Ecuador or any place else? Uh, send those on all the uh, different platforms. Hashtag Ask Alexi. All right, moving on. The back three. All right, it's time for the back three. We look at some big stories and games and moments out there. Mossy, what are we uh, talking about in the back three this week? Alexi, the 24th season of Major League Soccer Amazing. is in the books, and the Seattle Sounders reign supreme this past weekend. They defeated Toronto FC 3-1 to in MLS Cup at CenturyLink Field. It's their second title in the last four years. Yep. What are your impressions of the match this weekend? And, and, and put this 24th season in perspective. So congratulations to the uh, Sounders organization, a perennial competitor and a guiding light, especially when they came into the league in terms of supporters culture and numbers and all that. Um, they are just constantly there and constantly being competitive. Doesn't mean they're constantly winning. They are not a great team, as I've said before, for you to even be in, a, in the conversation when it comes to a great team. I think you have to win Supporters Shield and then win MLS Cup. Uh, and certainly to be considered in my conversation for one of the greatest teams, you definitely have to do that, which they did not do. But they are a good, solid team. The game was not great. First half was not great. Second half was much was much better. The environment was was wonderful. Seattle brought it from the concerts and the marches before to the actual environment. And I have absolutely no doubt that the presence and the noise and the support that they brought helped Seattle. I talked about Brian Schmetzer last week, the uh, the coach. Uh, congratulations to him. He oftentimes does not get enough credit. I think he's getting his due, and rightfully so, a guy that's taken this team. By the way, a guy that's been with this team forever, played with this team, uh, was part of the coaching staff even before it was part of Major League Soccer. And so he is Sounders through and through, and he will go on for the rest of his life to be a Sounders legend. And he's getting his due in terms of coaching, and as he showed, you bring this team to three out of the last four MLS Cups, you must, be, uh, you must be doing something right. They are not a dynasty. I think that you, at the very least, have to win three to be considered a dynasty. Three in the span of, I'll give you one leap or one year that you don't. So it would have to be three in four years or something like that. I think we've had, there's a galaxy at, at a time would, would be considered and, and legit in my dynasty criteria. When it comes to wrapping up this, uh, this season, it was an, I think it was an incredible season. The playoffs 
were wonderful. The new format, I think it really, really enhanced the experience and produced a lot of very, very good and entertaining games for people that like MLS, even for people that don't and just kind of dabbled in it. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who didn't at least take some sort of enjoyment to all the excitement, El Trafico, Zlatan, all the different things that were going on, Atlanta. The expansion that we saw with Cincinnati, while not a good team, the support that they have there, the expansion that's coming. So I think you put in the books a 24th season that, without a doubt, has to be considered a success on and off the field, which leads us to 25th season coming next year. And it's, gonna, it's, it's, it's gone like that. I can't believe that we're already into the 25th season. This is, as I've said before, I am unabashedly a proponent and a champion for Major League Soccer. It is our thing. It is my thing, warts and all. I recognize that it's not perfect, but it is... It is what I have. I was there from the start. I wasn't up in Seattle for the uh, for MLS Cup, and I was thinking back. I mean, I may, I may have missed, of the 24 MLS Cups, I may have missed two or three. I've always been there in some capacity, or another, even though we're not broadcasting it. Usually I'm there to do some sort of appearance. It was nice. It was nice to actually just watch it and enjoy it uh, and enjoy the culmination of what I think has been a very, very uh, successful season. It's interesting. We talk so much about super clubs in the context of Atlanta and LAFC. And then you take a step back and look at the Sounders, three MLS Cup appearances in four years, two titles that they're putting together quite the resume there themselves. Now, I ask you this purely to induce a fun Twitter video. Uh, <laughs> Don Garber, in his kind of state of the league right. speech, said that MLS right now is one of the top leagues in the world. And as you can imagine, that comment drew a lot of strong reactions both ways. Uh, it's kind of vague enough that, I don't know, sure. you know, I don't know, you can interpret that different ways, but uh, what did you make of that? And, and, and just, in, in, I'll ask it this way, 24 years in, is MLS at a higher level than you expected it to be at this point, lower or about what you expected? Oh, I think it is accelerated and is at a level much higher than I could have anticipated 25 years in. Look, we, we came at it bullish. We came at it with a positive feeling that this was going to be successful. I don't think any of us at that moment in our wildest dreams envisioned the type of league that it has become. And as I said before, an imperfect league in many senses on and off the field, a league that continues to grow. What did uh, Don call it? Said one of the top leagues in the okay. world. Okay, so in the same way that I can no more tell you what a, a, a good-looking person is or a good wine or a good food or, or a good art and stuff like that, you know, he's throwing that out there. And that's in his, in his opinion. And obviously his opinion is shaded and biased because he's the commissioner of Major League Soccer. But I think what, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think what he's talking about is there is an envy that exists, even from well-established leagues and cultures out there as to what is being done, either the structure, the business, the growth, and I think most importantly, the potential, which is why you get people coming in and wanting to buy expansion teams. This is why you get people even from the outside, kicking the tires and saying this could be something. This is why you get more and more players looking at MLS as a uh, as a potential uh, destination. So yes, Don knew exactly what he was doing when he said that. And look, it, it takes someone who enjoys poking people to understand someone who is poking people. And he knew exactly how that was going to rile up uh, some folks out there. But you know, there are there are different criteria and different 
calculations that you can use as to what a great league is, what the best league is, all, all of that kind of stuff. So I, I don't think that he was saying that MLS is the EPL in terms of entertainment or numbers of eyes or something like that. But in 25 years, what this league has done, you put that up against any league, any sport, I would venture to say a lot of businesses out there and this is a proposition that is going to be the envy, and I get back to that word envy, of a lot of people going down. And I think that's where that comment was birthed from. And you mentioned uh, expansion. It looks like Charlotte is yep. next, right? And then the other two that have been mentioned are Vegas and uh, was it Phoenix? No, I think, well, I think Charlotte is, I mean, because the commissioner keeps saying Charlotte and, and, you know, with that smile of his and stuff like that. I'm actually going to be interviewing the commissioner uh, in a couple weeks down in Miami at Soccer X. So I'm going to be asking him these types of questions and finding out what's going on. But there's a, there's a lot of people that, that see it as a smart business move. And yes, they have a belief in, the, in their culture and their community that they're coming from in the market, wherever it's from, so they can do something like this. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I looked at my producers and got absolute blank stares over there. I mean, well, that, could not have been. You, you got to be used to that. Less by helpful, now, right? I mean, <laughs> yell it out, Sacramento. Oh. There we go. Well, Sacramento's coming in. That's no, no, a, no, that's, that's a coming done in. Deal. I'm talking teams 30, Once 31, again, and 32. Of, of absolutely no help. You know the. Okay. Our, our back, look it up. Maybe by the end of the pod, I can back, correct myself. If it was our backroom, no help at all. Um, all right. <laughs> I'm just uh, kidding. I love you guys. Next up, uh, we switch over to Spain, uh, where I think we're going to have an epic title race this season between Barcelona and Real Madrid. They are level on points through 12 rounds. Uh, this past weekend, uh, Barcelona won 4-1 against Celta Vigo. Messi with a hat-trick. They are going to rely on him like never before because it's clear that that team is just not going to function collectively as well as they want. There was an unbelievable play in their Champions League game against Slavia Prague in which Messi took off on this darting run and opted for the shot. And yes, he took a great shot that hit the crossbar, but how he didn't roll it across, across to Antoine Griezmann, who was wide open, it would have been on his left foot. Uh, so I thought that was actually a very telling moment. Real Madrid, meanwhile, we want to focus on them a little bit more. They won 4-0 away to Abar this past weekend. And a couple of interesting notes there. Uh, Zidane has done this twice this season where they have this young Brazilian teenager, Rodrigo, who everybody loves. And there's been a couple of instances where he's done something great, which has gotten the hype machine going. And then Zidane leaves him out of the next game. Earlier this season, he came on, he scored on one minute after coming on in his debut. And then Zidane sent him down, back down to Castilla after that. And then and then this one was, was really surprising. He, he goes out, he scores a hat-trick in a Champions League game against Galatasaray, the second youngest player ever to score a hat-trick in the Champions League. And then the next game, he's an unused substitute, which shows you, we've talked about how to handle these young starlets. Zidane is very much of the belief of not letting the hype get too out of control, kind of suppressing it. He also is a firm believer in utilizing his whole squad, uh, rotating a lot, keeping everybody sort of in the mix. And so he's done that a lot too this season. So what do you make of that? A player scoring a hat-trick in a Champions League game and then not playing in that subsequent league game. I mean, look, these are people that have tremendous amount of experience and a lifetime uh, both on and off the field of understanding what, but what buttons to push. But I, th I think sometimes it, it can be viewed externally and by the people involved, and especially a younger player, as punitive it, in, in a certain way. And I just always hope that the best interests of the player are at the core of these decisions. And you're not doing it in a strange way to either show your power or, you know, this this whole concept of you haven't paid your dues yet, Rook, or you know, all, all that kind of stuff. 
I think that that's, I think that unfortunately that often says much more about the person doing it. And you're doing it much more so that you feel in a strange way good about yourself in that you are perpetuating this concept of you have to wait for it and you're not good enough. Yes, there is an element of, of proving yourself and stuff and something like that. But I just think that there's, there's often times where coaches, and especially coaches that have played, feel like they are doing this and they're doing it in the name of progress and they're doing it in the name of, of good coaching. And, and in actuality, what they're doing is they are you know, putting their insecurities uh, or their at times antiquated type of beliefs on a player at a time uh, and a situation that doesn't necessarily need to be had. Now, two of the goals against Abar were courtesy of Kareem Benzema. It's funny, Robert Lewandowski, off his performance in their classical where he scored two goals, there was a lot of chatter about how b- because he, he came along in the same generation as Messi and Ronaldo, we don't appreciate him and what an incredible career he's had, and I think that's absolutely true. But I always put Kareem Benzema in that category as well. And it's interesting because when he played alongside Ronaldo, he sort of took on this more playmaking center forward, right. kind of Firmino-esque role. Because everybody uh, and, adjusts And, and, and complemented very well to Ronaldo. Ronaldo. When Ronaldo left, there were a lot of questions as to whether Benzema could sort of switch back and become this sort of goal scorer that they needed him to be. And he absolutely has. He's leading La Liga in goals this season. And actually, the, the Spanish media has been trumpeting this stat the last couple of days. He actually has more goals than Ronaldo since they split up, 41 to 34. I mean, do, do you buy that, that Kareem Benzema is a guy that's been maybe a little bit lost in the shadows here because of what Messi and Ronaldo have done, but he is also this all-time legendary player that warrants a lot of... Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't think that when all is said and done, he is going to get his do I don't I, is is he underappreciated or undervalued? Yeah, you can make a, an argument for that. And well, you're playing in the shadow at times of some very very big players, but he has quietly gone about his business, as you said, at times changed in order to accommodate. And you know that's that's a selfless type of move for a, a very big player and 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 a big name in and of itself. So. I do agree with you that that this is a player that I think many years from now there will be somebody who will dig it up and kind of write, you know what, we didn't know what we had at the time, and and we might not even know it now, and so I'm here to tell you this was a player that was much better than I think people believed. He uh, he recently became the French player with the most goals at a non-French club. His total for Real Madrid surpassed what Thierry Henry scored at Arsenal. And I was actually watching a, a French uh, show where they were debating who's the best French striker of this generation, Benzema or Thierry Henry. And it was very split amongst the panel. It was actually a very good debate. Speaking of Ronaldo, by the way, that was the other big game in Europe this weekend. Juventus played against AC Milan and pretty amazing situation there. Uh, uh, with that game nil-nil, Ronaldo was having a terrible performance. He got subbed out in Shit. the 55th minute and stormed out, Wasn't left the stadium with fears. The guy that came on for him, Dybala, ended up scoring the winner. Juve won 1-0. But boy, uh, I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo subbed out in the 55th minute of a nil-nil game. I never thought I'd see that. Uh, he hasn't been in great form lately. So that's a situation that, that warrants watching. Yeah, I it yeah, never, once again, that whole, so I was talking earlier about the, the Pep handshake and the, and right. the stuff. It never. If you're happy at getting subbed out, then there's something wrong with you. Now, if you if you're a baby about it and you're screaming and yelling and you're embarrassing other people, you know that that gets a little old. But even that, it's, I, I think oftentimes we, from an optics perspective, and we I say the outside when we're watching that, we we gasp and we put much more meaning to it than it actually is either to the player 
or, or to the coach or the relationship. Yes, they all understand that they're, the spotlight is on them and they are on stage, but their, their ability to control their emotions sometimes gets the best of them. I don't think that coaches or players take it as personally as we make it out to be when you have these, what we frame as confrontational moments. Yeah, I mean, so we'll keep an eye on that. That was that was a gutsy decision by Sadi to take him off, and uh, we'll see how. All right, what um, else? All right, and we will end on this. Last week, there were reports that UEFA is considering staging the 2024 Champions League final in New York at, at MetLife Stadium. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, now, those reports have since been refuted, but it's been refuted that it won't happen in 2024. They have talked about the possibility of some at some right. point staging a Champions League final. They acknowledge that that's been bandied about and is in consideration. Staging a Champions League final outside of Europe and presumably would be in the United States. What did you make of those reports? Would you be in favor of this? Once again, you'd be dumb if you are running a business and all of these uh, these teams are not just businesses, but global businesses, global brands, these teams and these leagues and these entities when it comes to UEFA or anybody else, they recognize that the ability to reach globally is important. So you've got to identify emerging markets. Hello, United States, not just an emerging market, but one with a potential to grow to something phenomenal. So you would look to give that moment or provide that type of moment on U.S. shores that would be seminal, would be groundbreaking, and would be watched not just by the market that you're trying to cultivate, but everybody around the world because of the unique aspect of it. But you're also competing. And if you are U.S. soccer, uh, if you are Major League Soccer, as is always the case, they are going to be protective as they should, part of their job is to be protective, but unless and until they find a way to make it worth their while. And ultimately it comes down to um, the ability, if they find ways, either direct or indirect, to, as I said, make money on it. Do I want to see it? Yeah, I think I kind of want to see that uh, and what it looks like, but in doing so, is it being detrimental to what you're trying to achieve from a domestic standpoint and what you're growing? If I was Don Garber, I'm not sure that I would want to see that. If I was U.S. soccer, I'm not sure that that would be something that you want to do. There's only so much that you can do, and we know that summers are filled, chalk-filled with games. This may be a bridge too far, I don't, unless they can find up some creative way. And it's going to make a ridiculous amount of money. And so as long as people get their beaks wet <laughs> and more, not just their beaks, where there's a will and a big well of money, there is a way. And 2024 is the next one that's up in the air because they've already decided, obviously, Istanbul this year, then St. Petersburg next in 2021, a city that I absolutely love. I've spoken about on this pod. Then Munich 2022, and then 2023 will be at Wembley. And yeah, a lot of people argue that these leagues putting their Super Cups in, in different countries, and even the Copa Libertadores being final being staged in Madrid last year, even though that was under crazy circumstances, that that was all kind of a slippery slope to this, that 
that this is sort of the nat- natural consequence of that. Uh, where, where I come down on this, I, I know you're, you're always sort of put into one of two camps. You're either this stodgy traditionalist that's completely averse to change, or you're this guy that's up for anything as long as it makes money. I, I, I like to think of myself as somewhere in the middle. I'm open to change, but this to me is a bridge too far for a, a region to hold its like showpiece event, biggest game, not in that region to right. me is odd. That that would be weird to me to have a UEFA Champions League final not in Europe. And there's no <laughs> there's no real reciprocal or, or quid pro quo type of thing because they're not going to give two you-know-whats if CONCACAF Champions League is in London or something oh, like that. that. <laughs> 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 yeah. But it is, it is weird because the whole point of having these associations and and federations against federations, stuff like that, is you represent your membership, be that teams, be that countries, be that uh, national teams, whatever it ends up being. And so obviously the Champions League final, there is no representation in the United States, but you got to spread that brand. And and on, on this, I mentioned the Copa Libertadores. I did a Mossy makes a case about that final a couple weeks ago. The fact that it was in a neutral venue, and I mentioned Santiago, which is where it was going to be at the time. That's since been moved because of the protests going on in Santiago. So Flamengo and River Plate will square off November twenty third in Lima, the capital of Peru. Ooh. So. Boy, these last couple of years, uh, Copa Libertadores' final location has been a very like tumultuous deal. But uh, hopefully, uh, well, the final. Maybe they go- should put that in Toledo. <laughs> 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 all right. Well, we'll see where all these finals end up, or if they're allowed to end up any of these uh, places that they're talking about. Anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right. So we come to the end of yet another show, and at the end of each and every show. As you know, we'd give our one big thing, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we are recording this on Veterans Day. And, you know, we talk a lot about American soccer, and we're surrounded by Americana, and uh, I don't want to speak for you, Mossy, but I feel that this is the greatest country in the world in terms of uh, the opportunity that it gives. And the reason why we have the opportunity to sit here and babble on about, uh, about soccer is because men and women for many, many years uh, have sacrificed and many have uh, made the ultimate sacrifice uh, for us to have this type of country and to have these types of opportunities. Uh, And the moment that we uh, take them for granted, we are in trouble. And so while this is one day, we recognize uh, all days should be celebrating all of these men and women who I said have served and sacrificed and many paid the ultimate uh, sacrifice for us uh, to be able to do that and uh, that continue to do. And oftentimes I will talk about the honor and the privilege that I had of putting on a uh, jersey for, that represented the United States and going out there and representing my country. In no way, shape, or form does that compare to the, uh, the sacrifice and the service that the men and women, as I said, uh, of our country over the years uh, have given. It's just a soccer game where we go out and kick the ball. And that all of those men and women have enabled me to be able to do that, to put on that jersey, to put my hand over my heart, to go out there either here in the United States or all the places around the world and represent what I feel is the greatest country in the world. Um, a day uh, or a thanks is is never enough, but this is certainly the day that we have where we highlight it and we want to make sure that uh, everybody else out there is uh, is doing that and saying thank you and taking a moment and recognize 
how important it is for everything that we do each and every day. Mossy, uh, we will be back again next week, right? I will not be on the road, so I will be here uh, again. As I said, at some point in the future, I'm uh, traveling to uh, Miami where I will be interviewing Don Garbo. I'll be asking him some of those questions uh, and maybe more that you write up for me or that you give me out there. And by the way, if you have questions out there uh, for me to ask Don Garber down there in Miami at uh, Soccer S- uh, X, send those through too. So you got something? Oh, well, now that you've opened it up to the floor, do you suspect you might get a promotion relegation uh, <laughs> suggestion from it's somebody? Very, it's hey, very Alexa, possible. Maybe bring that up. It is, it is uh, very possible that that will be a, a topic of, the, of discussion going forward, as will expansion. Where does expansion stop? All, all of that kind of stuff, how he sees uh, the national team and all that. Speaking of the national team, we started off the pod talking about this, <laughs> this incredible game that is coming up against uh, Canada and how important it is for Greg Berhalter. ESPN is televising that, and then we have the Cuba game. And when I say Cuba game, it is against Cuba. While it's not being played in Cuba, as we said, it's going to be down in the Cayman Islands. So two games that, uh, you know, when we talk again next week, uh, well, that, that, that one's on Tuesday. So when we're talking about next week, the Canada game will be over. So let's be honest. That is the game that is going to, in many ways, decide, I think, and change, or at least warp some perception when it comes to uh, Greg Berhalter. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out. Anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right, send us all your questions with the Ask uh, Alexi hashtag. Uh, hit us up over there on Twitter, on Facebook, on uh, all the different platforms out there. Review, rate, subscribe, Stitcher. Apple uh, Music, Spotify, all the different things out there. YouTube, you can watch us too if you if you so desire. And uh, we will see you again next week. All right, as always, size the day. 